Hi, everybody. Let's open up to Acts chapter three. This is Jesse Campbell, and uh, we are going live for the Redemption Church. Uh, this is exciting stuff. Um, we're going to go through this sermon together, and then I provided um, a free family slash home group study session for you to take on uh, with your with your group with your little ones, whatever you need. Um, we are also making this available at jessicamboministries.com for those of you who are regular subscribers there. And uh, we're working our way through the book of Acts, which tells the story of the New Testament church. We can all trace our origins spiritually back to the book of Acts. Every church that exists today can trace its origins back to these events. Every church that believes in Jesus and is filled with the Holy Spirit of God and it trace its origins back to this. So this is how our spiritual ancestral stories begin. You were led to Christ by somebody who was led to Christ by somebody who was led to Christ by somebody who was led to Christ by somebody whose story started in these chapters. So let's look at Acts chapter three, beginning in verse one. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple for the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. A man who was lame from birth was being carried there. He was placed each day at the temple gate called Beautiful so that he could beg from those entering the temple. The Jewish times of prayer were 9 a.m., noon, and 3 p.m. They're still going to the temple at the prescribed Old Testament times. They're still observing Old Testament law even as they enter the New Testament, even as the New Testament is launching, they're still carrying on these traditions of the Old Testament. In fact, Judaism and Christianity were almost indistinguishable from one another until about the year 70, when the tension broke and the Romans sacked Jerusalem. And the term Judeo-Christian didn't really come about until modern American history to make a distinction between the two. So Christians were seen as a radical sect of Judaism because they believed the Messiah had come and they would carry out some of the Old Testament traditions, just excluding those that would deny Jesus as the Messiah. Here, the time of prayer, they're going to the temple and it's not quite what it used to be. The temple's not quite the same anymore. And there's this one gate that is incredibly beautiful. In fact, that's the name of the gate. It's the gate called beautiful. It was ornate. It was well-decorated. It was opulent and extravagant. But at the base of it were people who were in great need. The appearance was good, but the need was ever-present. And it was at this gate called beautiful, which separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of women that Peter and John were passing through. And there's a man who has been paralyzed since birth. All right, we know based on later on in the text, uh, chapter four, verse 22, that he has been, been begging here for 40 years. When he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple, he asked for money. Peter, along with John, looked straight at him and said, look at us. So we turned to them expecting to get something from them. But Peter said, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, Nazareth, get up and walk. 
Then taking him by the right hand, he raised him up, and at once his feet and ankles became strong. So he jumped up and started to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. All the people who saw him walking and praising God, all, all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized that he was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple. So they were filled with awe and astonishment at what had happened to him. This gate is called beautiful. The man has been lying there for four decades. He sees Peter and John and he asks them for money. And Peter says, silver or gold, I do not have. All right, the, the apostles were pretty broke. But what Peter and John did have was way better than silver or gold. They had the Holy Spirit of God. They had healing in the name of Jesus. What happens in this miracle is more than a physiological one. Although the physiological aspects are fascinating to consider, the man apparently, you can tell like Luke as the gospel writer is ever the physician here because he's, he speaks in very specific physiological terms about the, the weakness of the man's ankles. And he talks about how they were suddenly restored. So uh, while Matthew and Mark and John and their gospels recounted slightly differently, Luke's gospel in telling this story describes the particular, ail the particular ailment this man suffered from since birth that was rectified. And evidently this man just knew the instant that it happened. Like he knew the instant that his ankles that had always failed him were suddenly strong enough because he instantly begins running and jumping. And then what's the operative term here? Praising God. There's more to this than a miracle. Anytime somebody who's paralyzed gets up and walks out and people are amazed in the Bible, if you're on Jeopardy one day and the question comes, like, what's the real miracle of Acts chapter 3? What's the real miracle of the paralytic healed in Mark's gospel? If you answer that a paralyzed man got up and started running and jumping and walking, and don't forget, because you're on Jeopardy, you got to put it in the form of a question, you would go home empty-handed. Because that is not the greater miracle here. Consider the man who was paralyzed, who was lowered down on a mat in front of Jesus. These friends couldn't get through the crowd because it was so dense, because everybody was trying to clamor around and see Jesus. And they got inventive, and they were really inconsiderate. <laughs> okay, just picture it with me. Just imagine the scene. There's foot traffic everywhere because you hear that Jesus is in town. I mean, you could just wake up and you instantly hear the murmuring chatter outside your door. Everybody's chatting. Everybody's talking about it. Like something's different. Something's happening in your town today. There's something new happening. Just this Jesus is here. And you go and you meet with one of your friends and you have one of those friends that like the two of you can have a conversation without saying a word from a distance. You know what I'm talking about? You look at each other and you're like, and because you guys are both thinking of one of your friends who's paralyzed, who stays by the pool every day begging for money. And the two of you look at each other and you're like, we got to go get our friend. Yeah, but we say it with only your eyes and then we're going to get Starbucks first, but we won't tell him unless we bring him something, then it's okay. And you guys get together and then your third friend comes running up and does the I thing too. We got to go get our friend. We got to bring him to Jesus. And he tries to hide his Starbucks cup behind his back. And you guys all gather together and you go to the pool and there's your paralyzed friend. He looks at you and he's doing the I thing. Like, bring me to Jesus. I can't walk. Morons, get me. And you guys all come down together and you pick up his mat, one at each corner, 
you know, and maybe if you're Hebrew, you may, may have counted like Aleph, Bey, Gimel, and you pick them up and you start following the crowd. It's not hard to tell where Jesus is. You just, you just follow the foot traffic and, and you turn around a corner and then suddenly it is absolutely packed out. It's like Main Street USA right before the fireworks at 8 p.m. And it's not going to work. So you try to try to go another route. You try to go around, you try another angle, but the, the, the traffic's even thicker from this angle and there's no way you could get through it unless you had like a sharp object or something. And so then you try yet another angle and the traffic is still thicker. You can tell that all the faces are all radiating towards one building right in the middle. Evidently that's where Jesus is. And that's where you have, you have to get your friend to Jesus. You'll stop at nothing to bring your friend to Jesus. No crowd will stop you from bringing your friend who is broken to Jesus who could heal him. And then there's that one friend in your group who just gets a wild eye. You know what I'm talking about? You know that that one friend, that one friend, every group of friends has that one friend who just utterly lacks all discretion. Okay, think about it. If you can't think of who that friend is, then you are that friend. And he just gets this wild look like, let's go up on the roof. And so you bring your paralyzed friend up onto the roof and it kind of dawns on you as you're bringing him up there like, if we drop him and we hurt him, is that kind of like wrecking your car on the way to the body shop? Focus, pick him up, get him up on the roof. And then like you guys are, it, 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 this is not in the text, but there's reason to believe that they may have had to go from one rooftop to another to get to the building. And this is also not in the text, but we know based on archeological discoveries that rooftops in this area, in this time began using early forms of insulation. Okay. And so you'd have like clay layers on the outside and you would insulate it with maybe thatch leaves and then get this manure. So it doesn't say this in the text, but it's entirely possible that you guys just started pounding away at some stranger's roof or even worse yet, you may even know the guy. <laughs> He's your friend, but you're just pounding through his roof, pounding through the clay, pounding through the manure, pounding through the layer. And then imagine what it was like on the inside. Meanwhile, under the rooftop, Jesus is speaking. And at the very front row, of course, are all the Pharisees. They hated Jesus, but they watched him speak every time he spoke. And these Pharisees were right there in the front row with the best seats in the house. And then suddenly, boom, boom. And then like manure falls from the ceiling. Boom. And then like light breaks through. Everybody squints and you see these heads, like these four heads kind of like pop up. And then Jesus looks up. He saw their faith, like I've been waiting on you guys. And they lower their paralyzed friend down in front of Jesus. Now, if you think the next thing Jesus did was heal the man of his paralysis, you're wrong. Okay, you, you win nothing on Jeopardy. He looked at him and said, son, your sins are forgiven. Now that was huge because we didn't yet have any concept of spinal surgery. We had no concept of what caused paralysis. We had no concept of neurology. We didn't know what caused paralysis back then. And so it was just sort of superstition that dictated, look, if you're, if you're paralyzed, you must've done something really horrible to deserve such a state. You know, and never mind the fact that it was just, you were just born without the ability to walk. You didn't do anything wrong. Or like the man born blind in John 9, neither this man sinned nor his parents sinned, but this was done so the glory of God may be displayed in him. The works of God may be displayed through him. It was just thought, look, if you're paralyzed, it must be your own fault somehow. I don't know. And so for Jesus to look at this man and say, son, 
your sins are forgiven. That was the true miracle of the text. That's the miracle, in fact, that lasts forever. That's the miracle that is still resonating from our perspective today. When the Pharisees heard Jesus say this, they scoffed and said, who can forgive sins but God alone? So then Jesus said, so that you may know that the son of man, that's Jesus, has the authority to forgive sins on earth. He looks at the paralyzed man and says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. That's like the rudest thing you could ever say to a paralyzed person. But Jesus said it. Why? Because he had the authority and he knew exactly what would happen. The man picked up his mat and he walked and everybody went home astonished. It's just like the events of Acts chapter three. Everybody went home astonished. Only this guy, this guy had gets more style points because he was running and he was jumping and he was, as the operative term, praising God, giving glory to God. God gets 100% of the credit for all of this. Peter and John have no royalties contracts. All of the glory goes to God for this miraculous healing. When Jesus healed the paralytic of his paralysis in the gospel of Mark, it was to prove to the skeptical Pharisees that he had actually forgiven him of his sins. The paralyzed man would eventually one day kick the bucket anyway. Okay, he could kick the bucket because he wasn't paralyzed anymore. But now he's dead. So the, the lasting effects of his miraculous healing lasted only as long as that man's life spanned. Lasted only as long as he kept looking both ways before crossing the street. But the miraculous effects of Jesus' proclamation that he was forgiven lasts for eternity, lasts forevermore. Let's compare the two, all right? Compare the two on a bar graph, if you would. And just even say that the dude lived to be 100 years old, okay? Even if he did live for another 60 years in his healed state, all right, that's impressive. That's amazing. That's awesome. But it's only 60 years, all right? We, from our perspective, we've been going another over 2,000 years since these events have taken place. And so this miracle of his salvation outlasts the miracle of his healing. Salvation eats miraculous healing for lunch because salvation is eternal. Healing lasts only as long as our lifetimes. In this miracle, when Peter and John proclaimed by the power of God. Isn't, isn't it good they didn't have any money on them? Isn't it best for this man that Peter and John were broke at this time? Because if they've just given him some money, he may have had another meal. But instead, what he got was his soul saved forever. Instead, what he got was eternal healing by the power of God. Look at verse eight. So he jumped up and started to walk and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping See the style points and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God. And they recognized that he was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple. So they were filled with awe and astonishment at what had happened to him. They recognized him from his former life, his former brokenness. They remember him the way he used to look before the power of Jesus transformed him. Can anybody relate to that? You may look at me and you may instantly just think about stuff that I've done in my past. You know, how many of you guys, you gave your life to Christ. And then you ran into your friends you used to run with before you were a Christian and they didn't recognize you. Like, I remember this guy back when he was broken by sin, paralyzed by sin. I remember this guy back when he stumbled. I remember him that way, but now he's running. Now he's jumping. Now he's praising God. This is a totally different dude. This is a totally different story. So people were struck with awe just by the guy running and praising God because they knew that he used to be broken. May we all live such lives that we used to be broken by our sin, but we get up, we repent, and we give 100% of the glory for it to God. Continuing the text, look at verse 11. 
while he was holding on to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astonished, ran toward them in what is called Solomon's Colonnade. Why was he holding on to Peter and John? It's possible that he was still giving credit for the healing to Peter and John. It's possible that he still thought that they were the source. It's also possible that, you know, his legs got shaky and he lost faith for a minute and he just thought he needed to hold on to them. Or he was just incredibly, incredibly grateful. Either way, Peter and John are about to clear up with, in no uncertain terms exactly who gets the credit for this man's miraculous healing. This Solomon's Colonnade, this is, this is where Jesus taught about the good shepherd in John 10, 23. So for a flashback to this exact same spot, go back to John chapter 10, verse 23. This man went from the gate called Beautiful to Solomon's Colonnade. The gate called Beautiful is where people would come forward and make their offerings. It was a great opportunity for this guy because he's like, hey, while you're bringing all that money and all these ostentatious gifts to the church, why don't you give me something? Because I can't walk and I haven't been, I haven't been able to for, for 40 years. Like this man was dependent on the generosity of others. And he would, he would glean gifts from people at the gate called Beautiful. The gate looked really beautiful. What was outside the gate was broken people. Isn't, isn't that the case sometimes with the church? The church looks really beautiful on the outside, but man, there's brokenness right there in front of them that they fail to address. And now this man is at Solomon's Colonnade, where Jesus gave the teaching of the good shepherd. Go read John chapter 10. It's absolutely incredible. This is the exact same spot where Jesus gave that teaching. When Peter saw this, he addressed the people, fellow Israelites, why are you amazed at this? Why do you stare at us as though we had made him walk by our own power? Or godliness. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he knows that his audience is largely Jewish. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and denied before Pilate, though he had decided to release him. This is huge. He immediately asks a question that you're going to hear Peter kind of echo in the book of First Peter. If you haven't yet, go to jessicampbellministries.com. I've got a, a study called Peace in the Pandemic where we go through the book of First Peter, and Peter asks the persecuted church in Rome in AD 64 a similar question. Why do you act as though something strange were happening to you? He asks these rhetorical questions because it's kind of like the smart alecky question that the angels asked the apostles in Acts chapter 1. Why are you looking for Jesus? Why are you looking up at the sky? Like, or even the angels who ask those who came to the tomb, why are you looking for the living among the dead? They, they kind of learned this smart aleck rhetorical question method from the angels, I think. All right. why, why, are you, why are you looking at us like, like this? Why, why do you attribute any of this to us? Like, it's not like we did this by our own power or our own godliness. The litmus test to tell whether somebody's a false teacher or not, if they say praise God when you compliment them or if they take the praise for themselves. This is a common issue in churches even today. People look at what God does through a given ministry and they give the credit to the person on the platform rather than the savior on the cross. 100% of the credit for what God does to deliver people from addictions, to save broken marriages, to lead militant atheists to Christ, to lead people from deep within the LGBTQQIAAP plus community running faith in Christ, for Mormons abandoning Mormonism in, in favor of true, the true Jesus, for people abandoning their, their beliefs in Jehovah's Witness practices, for the true gospel, 
for people abandoning Islam and coming running to Jesus is more than a prophet, but the Savior and the Messiah. 100% of everything that God has done in that regard, 100% of that gives glory to him and not me. 100% of the glory goes to God. This is the litmus test for a, a false teacher or a true teacher. Now, even guys who want to take the credit for it, God will still use them. People can still get saved. That's like what Paul said when asked about guys who were trying to take the credit and trying to turn it into monetary gain. He's like, I just, I, I, that's fine. God will deal with them. I just praise God that the gospel is being preached. But Peter and John are very clear. 100% of this is credit to God. We didn't do this by our own power. We didn't do this by our own godliness. And then look at the confrontational tone that's taken in verse 13. All right, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just so we're clear, we're not talking about any other God here, being very specific, whom you handed over and denied before Pilate, though he had decided to release him. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer released to you, that's Barabbas. You killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in his name, his name has been made, his name has made this man strong whom you see and know. So the faith that comes through Jesus has given him this perfect health in front of all of you. These are fighting words. Man, this is this is confrontational. Peter did not hold any pun, did not pull any punches here. He's being overtly clear. This is the Jesus whom you crucified. This is the this is Jesus who is son of the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Okay, the patriarch, the progen- uh, the patriarch, the progenitor of Israel. Remember that guy that had the covenant with God? Yeah, it's that God whose son you crucified even though Pontius Pilate proclaimed him innocent six times. This is an interesting correlation to bring up Pilate at this point, because we in our culture today can heavily relate to this. Pilate succumbed to the ravenous mob, the bloodthirsty mob. And Pilate articulated quite perfectly the prime axiom of relativism, Asking the question, I think quite genuinely, what is truth? When he's standing there with Jesus, it looks as though Jesus is the one on trial. It looks as though Pilate has authority over Jesus, but Jesus sets the record straight. No, really, Pilate, this is actually you on trial before God in this moment. Jesus could have called legions of angels at any moment to end the whole process, but he said no word in his own defense. He fulfilled the prophecies about the Messiah in the book of Isaiah. And Pilate is torn as to what to do. His wife believes in Jesus. He's kind of convinced of Jesus, but he's really feeling the pressure of the mob. My skeptical friend, is that you? You're like Pilate? There's this cancel culture mob and it's rising up and it's really loud. And that crowd intimidates you. And you wouldn't do whatever that crowd says, even though that crowd's demands are pretty insane. Like they're trying to ask for a murderer to be set free. They're asking for Barabbas instead of Jesus. And so you do the right things on the outside. You wash your hands and you virtue signal and you act like you have nothing to do with this. But really, you are party to the crucifixion of Jesus. You succumb to the demands of the mob. You You succumb to the peer pressure of cancel culture. 
And you do your own kind of virtue signaling as though you could save yourself and you deny Jesus. Denying Jesus will cost you your eternity forevermore. Denying Jesus will bring you fair treatment for the sins that you and I both committed, what we deserve, what we, do you hear me say we? What you and I both deserve because of our sin is eternity in hell. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So here you stand with Jesus like Pilate before the mob. Will you, like the relativists of our day, ask the obtuse question, what is truth? Or will you look him in the eye? He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So you're going to have to forsake the mob. You're going to have to make the crowd angry. You're going to have to get canceled. Because here's the beautiful thing about cancel culture today, as far as Christians are concerned. God hasn't canceled you. They may all write you off, but God will bring to completion the work that he began in you. Cancel culture, the mob before Pilate, they're very similar. I get it. I know. I know my skeptical friend. Cancel culture is another word for accountability. Here's the problem. Cancel culture doesn't hold people accountable for what they've done. It utterly destroys them for words that they said. Cancel culture is different from an accountability in that it doesn't thoroughly vet and properly convict. It just goes with the results of a Google search to utterly strip someone of their platform, ruin their careers and their reputation, make them unhirable. Cancel culture is similar to what Pilate did before Jesus in that it does not actually give people their proper comeuppance because cancel culture destroys people for forgivable things. Cancel culture has no room for grace. Cancel culture has no concept of repentance. Cancel culture has no idea what redemption is. And this is what we're about at the Redemption Church. Like a fallen evergreen, looks like you're dead, but God's gonna bring you back to life and make you stronger than ever before. That's the whole point of the gospel, that we were all dead in our sin, but brought to life in Christ Jesus. All right, so don't, don't try to imitate Pontius Pilate, whom Peter and John are calling out right here in Acts chapter 3. Don't deny the Savior so that you can make yourself look innocent. Because the truth is that you're not, man. You and I are not innocent. The other problem with cancel culture is that every stone thrown at the sinner in the center of the circle was thrown by another sinner. Every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Who are we to stone sinners to death? We need a savior for our own sin. Everyone who has ever canceled anyone has something hiding in their closet that should cancel them. The beautiful thing about grace though is that when you're found out, you're found out before a loving God and he loves you nonetheless. The beautiful thing about the gospel that makes it so anti-cancel culture is that 1 John 1, 9 is true. God is faithful. He is just. If we confess our sins, he will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Can you imagine that in our day and our age? People being forgiven, people being cleansed, having their sins blotted out. Cancel culture is the antithesis of the gospel and it's massively hypocritical. It's not accountability. It's not comeuppance. It is sinners throwing stones at sinners 
who may even be innocent. That was the case with Jesus. May we not make the mistake of Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate even, look at the gospel accounts, tried to proclaim Jesus as innocent six different times, but eventually he succumbed to the mob. My skeptical friend, if that's you, it's not gonna fly when you stand judgment before God. You, right here and now, I'm gonna share the gospel with you. This is your moment on trial with Jesus. You must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Now, take it from me. This is going to put you right at the center of the angry mob, but he's worth it. You must arrive at a place where you care more what God thinks about you than what the mob thinks about you. Don't make the same mistake as Pilate. So Peter and John are using Pilate as an archetype. And they're referring to this crowd who was directly party to the crucifixion of Jesus because we're still in Jerusalem at this point. What's going to happen, spoiler, as we go forward in the events of Acts, persecution is going to break out and the believers are going to scatter out of Jerusalem. And then as they scatter, they share the gospel. But we're still in Jerusalem. This is exactly what Jesus prophesied in Acts 1. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But we're still in the Jerusalem part of the story right here and now. Look at the way that Peter calls out sin overtly and directly and pointedly. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and denied before Pilate, though he had decided to release him. So he, Peter is now taking the crowd to task for what they did, showing how Pilate was ready to release Jesus, but you insisted on Barabbas being released instead. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer released to you. You killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. This is the only time you see Jesus referred to by, by this nomenclature. And I think it's because of the context of people choosing between Barabbas and Jesus. And they call for Barabbas to be released. And they leave Jesus to face the cross. All right, Barabbas is convicted of murder. Jesus, perfectly innocent. Barabbas took life. Jesus, in this text, is the source of life. This is John 1, basic, right? In him we live and move and have our being. All right, all things were made through him and without him, not anything was made that has been made. All right, we all have our life in Jesus. He is the life, he is the light of men and that, the darkness has not overcome that light. He's Jesus, he's the light of the world. And you killed him, Peter says to the Sanhedrin, these 71 scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees and priests. He puts the blame squarely upon them, even showing how Pilate tried to release him, but you insisted you denied the holy and righteous one, right? You asked to have a murderer released to you. He's taking the task over this. You killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Again, here's Luke's firsthand eyewitness account coming to play, coming into play once more. By faith in his name, his name has made this man strong whom you see and know. Okay, he's saying, you can't deny the transformation you've seen in this man, pointing to the man. We can't call him the paralyzed man anymore because now apparently apparently he's apparently he's Michael Jackson. He's running and jumping and leaping everywhere. Like, apparently he's Peter Pan. Apparently he's 
He's in Cirque du Soleil. He's, he's leaping everywhere. It's the thing he does. Praise God. Right. He's, he's praising God everywhere. And you know this man. You've seen him. You walked right past him and ignored him when you walked through the beautiful ornate gate. So the faith that comes through Jesus has given him this perfect health in front of all of you. Let's keep reading. And now, brothers and sisters, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your leaders also did. And this way, God fulfilled what he had predicted through all the prophets that his Messiah would suffer. Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out. The seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus who has been appointed for you as the Messiah. Heaven must receive him until the time of restoration of all things, which God spoke about through his holy people and the prophets from the beginning. Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers and sisters. You must listen to everything he tells you. And everyone who does not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off, cut off from the people. So he's describing the messianic prophecies that would point forward to Jesus. He's talking about how Christ fulfilled perfectly everything that was said about him. Do you remember what we talked about in previous weeks about the road to Emmaus where Jesus took all the Old Testament prophets and said they were all about me. All the Psalms, they were all about me. All the Old Testament law, it was all about me. It was all about Jesus. And Peter's word to them, as he's very spirit-filled here, you're gonna see that come up again more and more in the text that Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit in verse eight. That's part of the, the group curriculum that's available at, redemptionwashington.com uh, and at jessicamilministries.com. You're going to study that as families or as home groups. And you're going to talk more about what it means that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit when he said this stuff. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, overtly puts the blame where the blame belongs. He's not pulling any punches. He's not holding back. Okay, if he went to like a seeker-sensitive, seeker-friendly kind of seminary, he would fail homiletics for this sermon that's written in the book of Acts. Because the popular notion about sin and repentance is like, you just, you don't talk about that stuff. Don't tell people to repent from sin. They don't like that. It's impolite, Peter. Okay, you're going to lose your audience, Peter. People are really put out by that stuff. No, 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 no. We just tell people, God's okay with your sin. God's totally okay with it. In fact, God's going to give you money. You don't even have to repent. Just give me some money and then God will give you money. God's totally okay with it. Just don't, don't talk about that repentant stuff. Bury that deep within the fine print. These are the passages of the Bible we're embarrassed of. Peter, calm down. Be sweet. Put on a suit. Straighten your tie. Like that. Peter would fail seminary at, in the prosperity gospel movement. He would fail seminary with this sermon, with this message. He would fail homiletics class because he's telling them, repent from sin and have it all wiped out. This is really impolite in our day and our age. Our relativist culture doesn't want to be called out for our sin. We, we want to be told that everything is okay. And so because we condone everything, we can condemn nothing. And so we find ourselves rationalizing and justifying increasingly debaucherous things. And this is nothing new. This has been happening in countless cultures across the globe for several millennia over and over again. It's cyclical throughout history. Romans chapter one is absolutely true. The only thing that stops historically cultures from our own shared decline into depravity is either the wrath of God poured out or revival. And that's what I'm praying for. Is anybody else praying that with me? God, bring revival to our culture, bring revival to our nation, bring revival to the Pacific Northwest. So you wanna know how you do that? 
how does how does God speak? What does it sound like when God talks? What does the voice of the Holy Spirit sound like? It sounds like this. He calls them out for sin and he says, therefore, okay, that's the takeaway, right? Repent and turn back. It's almost kind of redundant. He's being really emphatic about this. Turn away from that sin so that your sins may be wiped out. These guys were humiliated because Peter and John, though they were actually not breaking any laws, they were not breaking any laws here. They were calling them out for having crucified the Messiah. And these guys are not denying the miracle, by the way. Okay, let's keep reading. He's going to bring up this prophecy from Deuteronomy 18. He's going to point to more and more proof that the miracle actually took place. And then we're going to close out. Here's verse, here's verse 22. Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers and sisters. You must listen to everything he tells you. And everyone who does not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from the people. Both this prophecy and the prophecy that came before are prophecies that have both like a now and not yet fulfillment. This is from Deuteronomy 18, which is shortly after, uh, shortly after the chapter that delegates the Levites their own inheritance. They would not have a physical inheritance of land, but they would live off of the, they would eat the burnt offerings that the people would sacrifice. The, the, the Levites would be taken care of through the worship. He establishes the roots of the priesthood from Aaron now to the Levites in Deuteronomy 18, right before making this statement. He also goes on to call these people not to fall into the practices of sacrificing their children in fire, which was common among worshipers of Chemosh and Molech. So God's people are called out from all of that. And there's this prophecy made about this prophet and anybody who doesn't follow that prophet will be cut off from his people. This, I believe, was about Jesus. This is taken on now in Acts 3, a messianic connotation, because indeed the people of the Jewish nation who don't follow the teachings of Jesus are cut off from God. You cannot be saved if you deny the Savior. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. See our group study this week. There's nobody else who went to the cross. There's nobody else who resurrected. God's not done with the nation of Israel. But these crucifiers of Jesus are being rightly called out. And the only way to be saved is to repent. If Peter had said anything less than that, if Peter had made his words more palatable, if Peter had attempted to placate them and not, not and, and attempt to make them feel better about what they, they had done and assuage their guilt for having crucified Jesus, it may as well have been words of condemnation to hell. Instead, he gives them the only saving words that there are. It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Believe in Jesus, repent. That's it. Then your sins will be wiped out. So this draws upon a prophecy from Deuteronomy 18 spoken by Moses pointing forward to Jesus. Peter just took that prophecy from Moses and says that it points to Jesus. You want to know that prophet that Moses said, if we don't follow him, we'll be cut off from our people. Guess what? It was Jesus. You got to follow him or you're going to be cut off from God. And indeed it's true. It makes sense in that sense. It makes sense in that interpretation, doesn't it? That if you don't believe in Jesus, there's no other way to be saved. Now you also see this season of refreshing in verse 20. This is another now and not yet kind of prophecy. The seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord that he may send Jesus who has been appointed for you as the Messiah. This is about the coming restoration of all things, verse 21. Heaven must receive him until the time of the restoration of all things. So heaven received him in Acts chapter one. He ascends into heaven. And then the restoration of all things is coming. This is about, I believe this, I believe this is a prophecy about the, the coming millennial reign in Revelation. Now this opens up a whole another can of worms, I know. 
But this is, this is what Peter's talking about, this coming perfect restoration, this beautiful time when we'll receive Jesus back. So there's an apocalyptic prophecy right here in Acts chapter 3. You, you didn't know there was apocalyptic prophecy in Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 3, did you? In verse 24, in addition, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those after him have also foretold these days. It's fascinating to consider Samuel a prophet because Samuel was kind of like this linchpin. He was kind of like, like this linchpin between um, like the judges and the prophets and was the one who kind of appointed, um, like he was, he was useful in God, uh, useful by God in, in appointing, you know, the, the monarchy of Israel. He plays this unique role and he did speak prophetic words. And he, he goes all the way back to the roots, man, the very beginning. I mean, think about, think in your Bible, how the books of prophecy are arranged. All right. All of them really kind of trace their roots back to Samuel. And so he goes back to the, the very first of all of them. And he says, all of these prophets, Samuel, all the way through, all right, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of them, okay? Amos, Obadiah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zechariah, all of them. They were talking about Jesus. They were talking about Jesus. They were talking about Jesus. He shows them how all these prophets have all been pointing to these days, okay? These are the last days, meaning the days between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. You are the sons of the prophets and the covenant that God made with your ancestors saying to Abraham and all the families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. So Peter even reminds these Jewish believers of the global scope of the covenant that from Genesis 12 and 15, 17 and 22, every time it's ever iterated to Abraham, it's not just about Israel. It's not just about Israel, but all the nations, every nation, every tribe, every language, every time, everyone. Every nation around the earth will be blessed through this covenant that God makes with Abraham. This was hard for the Jews to give up. And today it still is even to, to realize that it's not just about God's election of Israel. It's about God's will. Everyone who calls upon his name would be saved. Every nation would call upon the Lord and be saved. God raised up his servant and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. All right, now the, uh, the Bible says he's going to pick up from this point on in chapter four. We've just seen Peter and John approached by a man at the gate, beautiful, or rather they approach him and he asks them for money. They don't have any money. And so they give him what they have. And instead he's miraculously healed. Isn't it funny how this healing causes trouble for them? Watch in our study together how these Sadducees inadvertently confirmed the miracle took place because they're asking in what name or by what spirit, by what power did you do this? And the fact that they use the words do this or like, have you done this confirms that this has been done. And they don't like the miracle. They liked that man better when he was paralyzed. Any new Christians, can you relate to that? Your friends liked you better paralyzed? Think about that for a second. They liked you better when you were stuck in your sin. They liked you better when you were riddled with your addictions. They liked you better when you were caught up in stuff that broke you before. They don't like you running around, jumping and praising God. It puts them out. All right, you're canceled. I don't like your gospel testimony because it makes me feel convicted for my sin. Christian, be aware of that. This man didn't call anybody out. This, this man was paralyzed and he's just running and jumping and praising God. He's not being rude to anyone. 
He's just living out his testimony. He's just being who he is in Christ. He can't help it, man. He's just praising God and people don't like it. They don't like it. When you have a testimony, when you've been restored, when you've been healed by the power of the gospel, whether it's physically through a miracle, praise God, I believe God's able to do that. He rarely does it, but man, when he does, give him all the glory for it. More importantly and eternally greater, if God has saved your soul, you run, you jump, you praise God, and the people in your life who knew you when you were paralyzed by sin don't like it because they look at you and your repentance and they see their own reflection and their own sin and it makes them feel convicted. You didn't say a word about it. You didn't bring it up. You didn't say anything about it, but they just, they're uncomfortable because the spirit that's in you convicts the spirits, the, the spirit that's in them. This man was living undeniable proof of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the very people who oversaw and instigated the crucifixion of Jesus were being taken a task over their sin. You'll notice that here, the angry mob with pitchforks that's ready to put down the church wasn't the non-believers outside the church. It was the religious leadership. It was the Pharisees, the Sadducees, particularly in this chapter, in, the, in chapter four. It was religious leadership who oversaw the crucifixion of Jesus that wanted to silence all of this. Whether it's your Christian friends who don't like you living out this radical testimony of repentance and they want to silence you, or it's your friends who aren't Christians yet who liked you better the way you were before, you can anticipate that you're going to catch flack for living out your testimony in Christ. People aren't going to like this. It makes people uncomfortable. It, it, may we not make the mistake that Pilate did and succumb to the pressure of the mob. May we, more like the friends of the paralyzed man in Mark's gospel, defy any crowd, break through any roof, go through any great length, do whatever it takes to bring our friends to Jesus, no matter whom we offend. May we care far more what God thinks of us than what the crowd thinks of us, what God thinks of us, even than what the hypocritical religious leadership think of us. God's view of us matters infinitely, infinitely more than theirs do. So you run, you jump, you praise God. Let your light so shine before me that they may see your good works and praise your father who is in heaven. I've had sin of my own in my own past. I've struggled. When my son Aiden died, I struggled with alcohol for a while and it came back a couple years ago. But man, I'm walking in repentance. Praise Jesus. Like I'm running, I'm jumping, man. I'm praising God. I've been set free. I know exactly what it's like to struggle with stuff. So I'm, I'm inviting you in, man. This is the grace that I found. It's restored me. It can restore you too. Would you run with me? Would you jump with me? Would you praise God with me? If this sounds good to you, my skeptical friend, if this sounds good to you, my friend who's been paralyzed by sin, your spirit is paralyzed by sin, would you get up, take up your mat and walk? Would you run? Would you jump? Would you praise God? Would you pray with me right now? The exact same power the exact same Jesus that let this paralyzed man get up and run and jump and walk is the exact same Jesus whose name I'm about to evoke right now. The exact same Jesus to whom we're going to pray together right now. He has lost none of his power. So would you pray to the exact same Jesus whom Peter and John proclaimed? Pray with me right now. God, I've been broken by my sin for a long time. I've been pressured into silence by the crowd like Pilate 
deep down, I've always kind of known that you're Lord, but I want to make this crowd happy. And so I'll deny you in front of men. Jesus, would you forgive me for having done that in the past? Because I'm waking up. My ankles are strong. I'm rising up from my sin. I'm repenting that every last one of my sins would be wiped away. I'm getting up, God, and people don't like it. Religious leaders don't like it. My lost friends don't like it, but I care more about what you think. You didn't make me to lie there by the outside gate of the church. You made me to run and jump inside and praise you. And so I'm running and so I'm jumping. God, I am healed. I leave my sin behind me forevermore. If I should fall again, would you pick me back up again? That I may run again and leap again and praise God again. Lord, would you help me to bring this good news to others? I believe you, Jesus. The exact same Jesus that allowed that paralyzed man to walk. That exact same Jesus. I believe, Lord, in you. I believe that you love the world so much, God, that you gave your son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him, like I do now, would not die, but have everlasting life. I confess, God, I've sinned. I've fallen short of the glory of God. I confess, God, that what I get in return for that sin is death, but I believe, God, the gift you offer through Jesus Christ is eternal life. I believe that you alone, Jesus, are the way to be saved. I believe that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and there's no way I can come to God the Father except through you, Jesus. So right here and now, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Would you say Jesus is Lord right now? Say it. Jesus is Lord. God, I believe in my heart that you raised Jesus from the dead. Let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be saved. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends and family, I love you. I'll love you forever. Would you go to redemptionwashington.com and get the Bible study that is made to follow this sermon? It covers Acts chapter four. All right, stay tuned. Check out the new redemptionwashington.com website. There's exciting updates there. Reach out to us if there's anything that you need. I'll see you next time.